Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the lectionary for Advent 2. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Jazzy Bostic, who is a Kanaka Maoli woman serving St. John the Baptist and Melohia Lutheran Church in Waianae, Hawaii. She and her wife have a small homestead consisting of raised garden beds, a flock of hens, a hive of bees, a dog, and a cat. They are foster parents currently awaiting their next placement. And the Reverend Phil Hooper, SMMS, who serves as curate at Trinity Episcopal Church, Fort Wayne in the Diocese of Northern Indiana. Phil has interests in writing and exploring contemplative spirituality. And last but not least, the exceptional Tamara Plummer, who is a Cradle Episcopalian from Brooklyn, New York. She serves as a program officer in the U.S. Disaster Program at Episcopal Relief and Development, where she leads the Episcopal Asset Map Project and hosts the podcast Pursuing Call. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being here with me today, and I'm so excited for us to talk about um, the second week of Advent. What do you think that we need to keep in mind this particular Advent for this year? I am thinking about how tired every single human being I know on the planet is, mm. and how overwhelming the pain and grief of the world is. And like every time you think that you got low, then you're like, nuclear war. Just lots of grace and space to just allow people to be where they are. And enough nudging to allow those of us who were capable of being, not us, because I I don't know that I was one of those people, but for those who were capable of being hermits, capable of being, inside some for very good reasons how to bring out folks who have been afraid to leave Hmm. or to engage in the world again and yes we can do that safely and we can be mindful of all the various safety protocols necessary to make people join the world but i think that so many folks have been doing the response work have been working to heal the world have been engaging in the world and a lot of those people need breaks I'm wondering about Advent as the new beginning of a new season, the beginning of a new liturgical year. We make, you know, our new year's resolution from a church and ministerial standpoint. How can we get those who have been, who have recuperated, who have been inside, who have not had to engage in the world? What are ways that we can invite them back into the fold of engaging with the world? Hmm. I'm thinking a little bit about just inflation. The inflation everywhere has been wild, but in Hawaii, it's been extreme. And the cost of living here is already so high. And Mm -hmm. for the communities that I serve, they're both, I'm in a rural, less economically advantaged place. And just the stress of having kids and what Christmas this like magical Santa thing that you're supposed to sort of manufacture for children, which a lot in my congregation are young families. And like the stress of having to do that without showing how tired you are, like you said, Tamara, or without showing how stressful that might be on your budget or that kind of thing. There's a lot in our 
Advent readings as I was looking at them that is about economic justice, right? And sort of the massive divides between poor and rich and what that might look like for Christ to be coming to you wherever you are economically, but how that message might shift a little bit. But I feel that pinch and I feel that stress of the finances and the pressure to sort of have this consumerism as part of Christmas and how stretched everyone already is just because of like needing to put food on the table and the rising cost of that, which is somewhat inescapable, it seems right now. Hmm. Yeah, I just saw a Black Friday thing come across my email somewhere and I had like a panic attack. I was like, how the hell are we talking? It's it's September. And then I realized, no, it's a month from now. (laughs) We're in the middle of preparing Advent programming, of course, in the parish. And someone said to me recently, as we were having a conversation about that, they said, this Advent, we need more joy. We need more joy because everything has been so hard. We need joy. So I've been thinking about that comment from that individual and I think I understood what they meant by that, but it got me thinking about like, what does it mean when we talk about joy, the joy of preparation for the incarnation? And listening to what you were sharing, I, I think my sense of, of joy, like authentic joy, is that it's not the same as sort of a commercialized fake happiness, mm-hmm. that a joy is sort of a fullness, that it encompasses grief and struggle and pain along with hope? How do we broaden the understanding of joy to be more authentic and true to the struggles and realities of all of us, frankly, in in various ways, and still speak hope into the midst of those struggles? And how can that be joy versus a, a sense of like, it's Advent, we're getting ready for Christmas, we all need to pretend to be happy, quote unquote, right. uh, and sort of like put on a smile, even if we're actually crying. How do we hold sort of grief and tears and laughter all together and call that joy? I think that's sort of what I would love to lean into a bit this season. I'm going to talk about the psalm. We cover that in our Becoming Global Community Advent Guide. And the psalm asks God to give the royalty, justice, and righteousness, and quite a few other things. But what does the psalm tell us about how we should lead? And maybe what should we be expecting from authority? About to get us trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say, based on what I hear from people in my community, in the communities that I work with, say, they are done waiting for authorities to do anything. Hmm. The thing that we might need to hold is the tension, right? Like, I feel like this question of how do you hold tension? I've been obsessively reading Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, and she talks about paradox versus cognitive dissonance, like the ability to hold two opposing thoughts and understand how they inform each other to create a new thought. I am seeing people who have been failed by powers and principalities. Hmm. For example, FEMA benefits or... (laughs) Um, complicated policies and at the same time are doing amazing and incredible things with the resources they have in the places that they are and at the same time realizing that that is not infinite those resources and so how to hold accountable the powers and principalities the structures and systems 
while doing the work that you need to do, like holding these tensions of the communities are doing amazing things. They are making justice happen where they are with the limited resources they have, going above and beyond the call of duty to respond to human need in the world. And we need our powers and principalities and our governments that we pay taxes to, to have policies and procedures and practices <laughs> that support people who have this human need. And so I'm, I think the holding those tensions of saying, and then also the things of the Psalm being like, God will like rescue and crush the oppressor and all of that. Like there is a desire to want to see it happen and also like not evidence of it happening sometimes. Mm. And so I don't really have a hopeful message there, but it's just this holding the tensions between the two things is hard. But there might be something glorious in holding that tension and something new we could create. Yeah. That sitting in the tension, I was thinking about that with John the Baptist, which I know we'll get to later. When I was looking at the psalm, I think the thing that sort of struck me was it's sort of a prayer or a supplication on behalf of this king figure to be righteous, to be just in the way that God is. And it got me thinking about sort of like what gives power legitimacy. And I think this psalm to me says pretty clearly, like, really the true measure of any legitimate authority or power is the extent to which that power stands in solidarity with the vulnerable and the poor and the mm. oppressed. And that without that benchmark, it is not of God. And therefore, mm. it is not ultimately legitimate and it cannot, should not stand. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of self-interrogation that we, you know, those of us who live in the West or in the United States or in, in other places under certain authorities should probably be asking ourselves about the extent to which our systems reflect that sort of godly care and attentiveness to the most vulnerable. Mm. And if not, then we have to be willing to tell ourselves, well, then that's illegitimate power. And ultimately it will crumble because it is not what endures. It's a hard message though. One of the verses that I've been turning over in my mind is, I think it's verse six. He shall come down like rain upon the mown field, like showers that water the earth. And like you pointed out, Phil, there's kind of a conflation between he, is that he the king or is that he Jesus? Not really sure. But that sense that like God's reign falls equally on everyone, reign, R-E-I-G-N, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and rain mm -hmm. like, you yeah. know, rain that yeah. water falls from the sky. Um, and that it is like abundant and what the earth needs. The west side of the island is dry. And when it rains, we have a little garden and plants that we're kind of trying to repopulate on our uh, land. And this sense of like, ah, like when it rains, it's so lovely because it means we don't have to spend an hour with the hose or with, you know, our watering cans walking around to water everything. But it's also just you can see it. The mountains go from looking like fire hazards, right? Looking very kind of dry and crisp to this like beautiful green very quickly with just one kind of nice fall of rain. And this sense way that is equal in this way that we are longing for in a way that fulfills and like 
relaxes kind of and feeds and nourishes not just us but the land that we are on and it reminds me too or connects maybe a little bit Tamara with what you were saying about because we don't have that coming from our government or from those who are in charge there is like we have to create that kind of network within each other there's that tension right it's not perfect and yet there is a real beauty when we're able to see and be part of human networks where we're like all offering the broken piece that we have to try to build something better together or to try to show up for each other however imperfect it yeah but that there's something so tension holding but also so hopeful in that imagery of this rain coming down and watering all that is so dry and crusty and in need of nourishment and if there's too much of it then we end up in florida yeah um, on the east coast we have almost the opposite problem right of the too much rain and so it's like always this weird thing of what can be beautiful and be plenishing and be rejuvenating in excess can also be destructive mm. it's like always a, a weird place to sit with <laughs> yes it's raining and also don't rain too much because we had a really long bout of dryness and so if it rains too much now we're flooding <laughs> like, so yeah how do i appreciate um the balance of nature how do i appreciate the the enoughness of it all i really like what you said jazzy if you use the rain like a metaphor and feel kind of what you said too, the value of the leadership can be seen in how how well the plants are growing. And if we mm -hmm. think of plants as like the grassroots, right? Like how are our grassroots in our society either thriving or drowning or needing rain? How can we see that? And we see that I think around us and the disparities that are there and some of those different pieces that that are going on. One of the things that I get frustrated with is how separate our leaders are in our culture from the actual people they're supposed to be leading. And I guess that's probably the same in the time of the psalmist too, but it's like, they're so tied to like their political party or maybe whoever's sponsoring them and funding them, whatever lobby that is, instead of like actually being tied to what they think is best or what they, what the people really need. And that I think is really unfortunate. And I feel like the psalm kind of calls that out. Let me shift over to Isaiah. I love this passage and I remember preaching on it in seminary and thinking about like this stump. Sometimes we feel like we've been cut down to a stump and um, Isaiah sort of saying that there's hope this little shoot will come out and maybe it will grow. Has there been a time that you've felt like you've been cut down to a stump and what shoot came out and, and what ended up happening with that? Yes, I can speak to a, a personal example Sometimes I'm hesitant to tell stories where it's like, a bad thing happened to me, and then I found a nice thing that came out of it, and therefore, hooray, amen. Right. <laughs> yeah, just because you can find goodness in the dirt doesn't mean the dirt needed to exist in the first place. <laughs> Precisely. But with that caveat, here's a stump moment. When I was in college, uh, which has been a while now, I was out of the blue diagnosed with a chronic illness, and it really upended my health, my sense of myself, my finances, my really everything. And it was not something that was quickly resolved. 
it's a chronic illness, so it's technically never resolved, but I wasn't able to arrive at a place of peace with it, really any sense of goodness from it for a long time. And if I'm perfectly honest, I still struggle with it because mm. it's chronic illness is challenging, as anyone knows who, who deals with it. I used this phrase in conversation with someone not that long ago, like a bad thing happens and I'm not going to say like, and therefore a blessing came, but I am going to say like, I'm going to claim a blessing from it. I'm going to claim a blessing from this stump. And the blessing that I claim is my deeper sense of empathy and humility and space for other people who feel broken in body. And I claim the blessing that it almost sort of stripped me of some maybe self-satisfaction or privilege or sort of carefreeness at a formative stage of my life and forced me to deal with mortality and big questions in a way that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. And while I probably would still change it and seek a cure if I could, because it's hard and scary, I'm still going to claim that. I'm going to claim it and run with it and do what I can with it. So for me, that shoot coming out of the stump is sometimes it doesn't just sort of come and you just smile and think hooray and do a little dance. Maybe you grow that shoot and you tend it as best you can and you say, okay, I'll make the best of this. I totally relate to the moment of chronic illness. Like mm. I uh, thought I was going to have fun and rejuvenate myself in Mexico and Mexico food had a whole different plan for my gut life after that. Mm. And I love food. Like when I tell y'all I love food, I love it so much. It is like the central part of my identity is the central part of my relationship with other human beings. Mm. Um, it is the way that I connect. And then it got taken away. Mm. Right when everything was opening up, right when... <laughs> Everyone's inviting you back out to the bar and you're like, yeah, no alcohol for me. No club soda either. I can drink water here. But what it has forced me to do is when I wake up in the morning, I cannot start my day at a computer hmm. or else it's going to be real rough for the rest of the day. Like I have to go and make my tea. I have to make my bone broth. I have to do these things to heal my body so that I can be in service to other people. Mm -hmm. I don't even have an option anymore. Mm -hmm. And so while I do not wish IBS on anybody, I will say that like, it is changing. I don't think it has formulated, as you said, just because the stump is growing doesn't mean that it's quite, it's not a tree yet. But the stump is that I'm being forced to care for myself and then have to be like, and say no to people like, no, I did not prepare for this meeting correctly because I have to drink. Like, you want to have a 9 a.m. meeting, I have to make all my teas and my set myself up <laughs> for mm. a good day. Mm. So let's figure out how to like, negotiate my care for my body, my care. If I'm too stressed, it exacerbates things. If I'm too overwhelmed, it exacerbates. So, like, I don't have a choice but to care for myself right now. And that has been a lesson I've been trying to learn for 42 years. I am grateful for what blessing I can take out of the thing. I am still would like to eat some spicy food. In this metaphor of the shoot growing out of the stump, 
is that that shoot often grows sideways, right? Like in actual mm. gardens and mm-hmm. like agriculture, when you have something like a tree that's been topped, it's not going to branch out of the top in the same way, right? If that tree is to kind of be resurrected, like have to come sideways. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit what you both are sharing with this, like claiming a blessing that's really small and you like don't love the blessing but there's still something good there right you're fighting for that green it can be easy to think especially the way isaiah presents it and the way we think of this metaphor of the you know shoot growing from the stump of jesse we think of like jesus sort of shooting or at least i do like jesus (laughs) straight up right like continuing the line and like no you know nothing is broken or whatever and actually really when I think about how that metaphor might work or how it has worked in my life, certainly is, yeah, these experiences of being cut off then force you to go like, I got to grow sideways. Like I, mm-hmm. there's nothing on that top. Mm-hmm. That's not, I can't make foliage there. There's no photosynthesizing that's going to happen from that <laughs> anymore. So like, how do I get the nutrients that I need to get? Like you've got to kind of grow in a different direction that you didn't really necessarily want to grow in. Mm-hmm. I always had that straight plan. Like I, I wanted to be simple, right? And then in those times when, yeah, I've been cut down or cut off, that way is no longer possible. Getting really creative about what are the side branches? What is this other way that I can grow, that I can move, that I can sort of finagle what I need to get done? Jazzy, what you were saying is such a word. Like it is such a word for all of us to just like note real quick because that feels like exactly the arguments of the church right now as everybody is mourning their half ASA from before, mourning whatever the heck they are mourning about Sunday morning worship because that's really what they're mourning. Mm. What is the sideways stump? What is the sideways situation? What is the, the transformation that has to happen? What is the thing that we never expected that is growing? that we are ignoring because it's Mm -hmm. not coming straight out the stump. Like, I love this. I love this so much. (laughs) It's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. And it, and and it, it resonates so clearly, I think with a really authentic reading and and approach to who Jesus is and and the incarnation. I mean, it's sort of a, he's sort of a sideways savior in a way. He's definitely not just like, like you said, springing up on the projected path of, strength and domination that people were hoping for it's this very sort of oh this is the way we're going this is actually the direction life is moving this is where hope is okay that's not what i thought (laughs) but that's that's great i love that that god vision is never my vision Mm -mm. and i'm thinking about that same idea you know if it's coming off sideways often those are the branches that you prune right those are the ones that you would cut off and I think so often our church and society and even, you know, Jesus' time too, they they wanted to cut Jesus off. Well, I, and they did, right? Just thinking about that. And maybe maybe we need to pay more attention to those sideways shoots and think about how can we use that. What's our new um, House of Deputies president? Julia Ayala Harris. Yes. Her um, sermon after the thing where she talked about, in her sermon, she was talking about um, her mom's how, uh, patio or something and like, these things that are growing out of the ground that she thought were beautiful flowers, but they were allegedly weeds and you had to pull them out. But like, 
what are the mm. things and she talked about what are the things that we think are weeds that we are pulling out or ignoring that are actually these amazing beautiful flowers and it also makes me think of mm. called the midwife where the lady with dementia is always trying to replant the sunflowers which mm. <laughs> are like weeds to the gardener dude and he's like why are you replanting these weeds and she's like they're beautiful flowers you know Later on in Isaiah, uh, he talks about this beautiful image of these different animals getting along together, ones that normally wouldn't. What does that look like to you? Or, or how do you interpret that? Or maybe what message can that bring us today? In both that reading and in the Psalm, these readings for Advent have such like agency in the natural world and agency mm. of the earth itself. You know, this in the psalm, like the little hills will bring righteousness and like the something about the mountains that I remember thinking, gosh, it's like the mountains are like alive, right? <laughs> and um, I think it is so often that God's creation tries to signal things to us, right? I think about like climate change. How many species have we seen gone extinct? Because... Mm their natural habitats are disappearing, right? And God's creation is saying, like, you are taking too much of our resource. You are not, you know, you humans are sort of overstepping your bounds. You are uh, deforesting too much. You are changing the temperature of the world too much. You are too attached to your gas-guzzling vehicles, right? All of these things. And the natural world is so often signaling things to us. I am so otherwise occupied that it is hard to slow down enough to pay attention. Mm. This to me seems like such a prophecy of like, pay attention to what the created world and what your non-human kin are saying to you, signaling to you, the ways that they might be connected to God that you might not be connected to God right? I think so much and worry so much and have so many plans of my own that it is hard for me sometimes to be humble and like have that submissive like obedience to God. And I don't think that's something that like my dog or my cat or my bean plants struggle with in the same way that I do. And there's a lot in that way that the natural world preaches to us about who God might be and um, relationships we might have both with God and with one another. And this vision from Isaiah seems like that, like this kind of thing that is amazing. And I mean, you watch YouTube videos of like, you know, animal friends, right? And some of this is already happening. That's why we love those like videos of the kitten snuggling up with the pit bull, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's this, it's this vision in a, in a small way or in a different way. Or, you know, the cow whose best friend is a parakeet or whatever, right? Like all of yeah. us have seen those like viral, like cute things. I just think there's a word here about how the created world is preaching to us, is ministering to us. Then my responsibility or my reminder to like pay attention. And also for this to really happen, the more quote unquote powerful animal would have to give something up for it to work. Mm-hmm. So the wolf can't eat lamb anymore. The leopard 
like these things that that you might the wolf might have to become vegan like that's not real wolf life that's a big sacrifice <laughs> mm-hmm. and then a child shall lead them right um especially in this time when we're preparing for literally a baby to come we gonna listen to a baby even though all of us who have taking care of children know that they rule the entire existence of humanity Um, (laughs) because if you don't take care of that baby that baby will not exist so like that baby rules your entire life and so i'm just wondering about what are the ways then if we extrapolate that to the to the world what are people willing to give up to make that peaceable existence happen and then how do we submit to the thing that we think we should not submit to as our leadership, when we talked about leadership before, what are new ways of thinking about leadership mm. and who's in charge? I definitely resonate with the idea of creation as a as a teacher, as a as a source of contemplation and reflection, and sort of bringing us back to a right sense of our own created nature, uh, because we are we are part of creation, whether we accept that we are or not, we are, we are part of it. And we just choose whether or not to live as though we are. Right. Uh, I am mindful too, that, you know, as you were just saying to like in the created order, as it stands now, death is present and the, the creation sort of consumes itself for survival. So like you say, the wolf eats the lamb and the, you know, death and, and destruction and consumption are, are part of what we contend with, not just by human actions alone, but, but we observe it in sort of life cycle and functioning of ecologies. And yet we perhaps perceive that even within that sort of cycle of that includes death and consumption, that there's more of a balance and there's a harmoniousness to it, mm-hmm. a sort of taking what's needed and not, not in an excessive or greedy way, but, but sort of there's a mutual sort of survival and symbiosis that exists in ways that we seem to really struggle with as mm-hmm. human beings. And I think what fascinates me in this passage from Isaiah is that it's this sort of, it's a step beyond even that. So we can say on one hand, in the present moment, we want to be more in solidarity and in balance with creation. And then there's this hope for a new creation in which even death and consumption themselves are no longer necessary to survive, Mm. that we will live on the life of God alone, and that somehow we will be sustained enough that we can live alongside one another without the need to take, period, which is so, I mean, it was kind of mind blowing when you think about it because we're so accustomed to taking and consuming and the presence of death all around us. And yet, I, I don't know, I, I, I find hope in the fact that we can even imagine such a thing or that someone, this prophet, could imagine such a thing and speak it into the world so that we can continue to believe that such a reality is possible despite all of the evidence around us. Uh, I mean, how how can we imagine a world without death when death is everywhere? It's an ongoing challenge, I think, for us. It is the sort of tradition that we've been given and the, the task as preachers and, and disciples to continue to sort of live into that poetic vision of a creation where sufficiency reigns and where peace is possible as a result. And I, I just find that so beautiful.
as you were saying, I was thinking about The Good Place. Mm. Spoiler alert, if you have not watched the show, you should skip forward. <laughs> I don't know if it's like to end the death cycle or to accept it as a part of the cycle. Because did y'all watch? So at the ending, yes, the living forever in heaven was not the, the like goal. <laughs> it was being in such a state of peace that you could return back into the energy force of it all. And like that you would then cycle back into whatever, you know, they never define kind of God or whatever, but my Christian brain is saying cycle back into the universe kind of, um, is it Hinduism? Now my world religion classes are elevating people who believe in um, reincarnation. Buddhism does that. I, I don't Buddhism. know if Hinduism does that. All the religions that do this, but this ways in which like it's a cycle rather than a, um, an end beginning kind of, um, that, that somehow that transformation of death life is an end and, and not a part of a larger cycle that we allow to ha happen. But it is that the goal is really the peace part, not necessarily, like maybe the wolf does end up eating the lamb. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's a part of the life cycle. But that there was even some time where there could be peace enough for them to lie down together. I don't know, this is like now I'm in very esoteric ter ter territory, but I'm just, it sparks my, my, my thought. Sure. So I'm going to shift us over to the gospel. And John, of course, always seems to come up. I struggle with the gospel of John, but I love the story of John the Baptist. And of course, this one's from Matthew, but John always reminds me of like a Lakota idea of, of a prophet, right? Because they're so like countercultural, almost like that sideways shoot that you talked about, Jesse. And he's doing like, you know, eating weird things and, you know, dressing in weird ways. And I think so often in our society, we see difference as bad or as other or as something to be avoided. And in Lakota culture, we often see difference as being sacred or something that's or prophetic. I see John that way uh, through that lens. But how do you all experience John? And what, what do you think we can learn from that? I love John the Baptist. One of my churches that I serve is St. John the Baptist. I love his weirdness. I love what I imagine to be his charisma because he just like mm. is so strange and yelling at people. And yet they're like flocking to see him. And you read his words and you're like, why would you sign up to be told that you're a brood of vipers and that you have to repent? So I imagine he must have been like wildly charismatic. Um, but I really am liking this idea of thinking of him as that sideways shoot and as Jesus as that sideways shoot. There's so much like messiness of John and messiness of Jesus and they don't fit Right? They're so kind of beautifully, gloriously fully human. Like mm -hmm. John is eating bugs and yelling at people, but yet they're like flocking to him. So he must be really preaching a word that they want to hear. Although I think if I stood up in the pulpit and said, you know, you brood of vipers, you have to repent. They'd be like, I'm out. Like, <laughs> you know, like not what we think most people sign up for on a Sunday morning. He's so complexly yeah fully messy and human like the rest of us but this kind of sideways shoot that he represents in terms of like 
bringing God's reign, but doing it in a really uncomfortable, unexpected way. And exactly what you were saying earlier, Shaniqua, about like that sidewaysness is what makes us want to prune it off, right? Or make society go like, that's not what we expected. So that can't be right, right? Mm. We think like there's only one growth pattern that is acceptable. And so we're going to cut off all the, all the side, you know, everything that's not part of that, that straight and narrow growth pattern. And yet that that sidewaysness is how God is coming to us and is reaching us and yeah, wants to sort of be in this incarnated part of our reality. I think John is fabulous. Uh, I enjoy him as well. You were asking us uh, in some sort of pre-conversation reflection, Shaniqua, about like our social location and how we, how that impacts how we read the text. Mm-hmm. And I feel like John, for me as a gay man, John is this really interesting figure who's like ripe for queer sort of queer reading of scripture. I think he is queer in a way, both in the sort of old-fashioned sense of that term he's he's unusual he's outside the norm mm-hmm. in a particular sort of queer theology way i think he really resonates for me i almost as i as i was revisiting this passage from matthew i was almost <laughs> i have to say i was envisioning like john the baptist as a drag queen like <laughs> on the side of the river sort of like reading the crowd uh, and okay. just like that opened up new horizons of of sort of like humor and playfulness along with seriousness, yeah. and and it got me thinking about like how there's almost like this camp quality to John, because mm-hmm. like camp in in sort of in some spaces of queer culture is like this combination of satire and humor and criticism and love and hope, like all sort of bound up together in this very larger than life sort of presentation but it's ultimately i think i think there is a love that undergirds it so that even when there's criticism or sharpness to it there's also like a pathos and a sweetness to it and so i don't know somehow thinking of john as this sort of queer figure just really sort of gave me a fresh little interaction with him in Lakota culture, we have this idea of a contrary or hayoka, a backwards person, and they are a sacred backwards person. Mm. And what you just said about, I hadn't thought of John as like reading people, but that's exactly, I think I really, I love, love that idea. And I think the hayoka, that's what they do. Like they're, they do weird things. Like they'll dress really, really like lots of clothes when it's hot outside or no clothes when it's cold out. And but they, they can say the things almost like a court gesture. They'll say the things that need to be said and people hear them and receive them differently because they're with that satire and humor. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of has time to sink in. It gets in a different way than maybe others might. And and I always wondered how John was so charismatic. And maybe that's the secret, you know? It's, it's this humor, satire way. That totally resonates as I translate that to the Black lady culture. So old mm-hmm. West Indian women. My mom used to be a director of uh, social work and she's a social worker in New York City Department of Aid Services and would have folks come in the office. And my mother's demonstration of love does not look sweet all the time. Um, <laughs> it will be like, fix your hair. You know, what are you doing? Go take a shower. Like she would say to people, <laughs> go take a shower and come back. You know, you smell like 
And people would be, and then, you know, other people in her office would try to speak that way to clients. And one day the client, this client that she had had a long kind of relationship like that with started cussing out this other worker. And she, so she, cause she often tells the story. And so the other worker is like, well, Miss Carol talks to you that way. And he said, well, Miss Carol is telling me because she's talking out of love. You're just trying to humiliate mm. me. Mm. Yes. She cares about me. She would make sure that I, I have a place to take a shower. She's, you know, she's still going to service me even if I don't smell and all that stuff. Like, even if you like, I know that it's out of love and care for me as a human. You are just mm -hmm. being rude. And mm -hmm. so maybe John's charisma is that that undergirding of like, I want you all to not have a crappy life. Like, right. mm. whatever you're doing right now is not working for you. And I want you to have a better way of being. I do not suggest that this is the way that we should tell people that all the time. Do not think of going up to people and calling them brood of vipers is gonna work well. But if you are the, if you have the right relationship, <laughs> you allow your drag queen friend to read you and take it <laughs> as word, mm, thanks homie. Because then she will yeah. also get your makeup together so that you look mm -hmm. good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And John does wash them, does physically get in the nasty river with them and is like, let's figure this out together. I'm eating bugs and wearing not the best clothes. Like, let's figure out how to get healing together, which feels. And then also then the challenge of like, what I'm doing ain't nothing compared to what Jesus is about to do. Like, mm -hmm. you thought I was rude. You thought I was, <laughs> I was like challenging you. Mm. Just wait till Jesus come along. That's <laughs> the whole situation. So, yeah, I don't know how I feel about John the Baptist. I feel like we just don't get enough information about John. So mm. I would love to know some some more. What you said, Tamara, about John gets in that river with them and he's seeking that healing, not like, you know, I have the answers and let me give you the to-do list because I've already got there. But like, we all have got to change. We, uh, you know, let's mm -hmm. like figure it out. Reminds me so much, um, Shaniqua, of what you were saying about leadership that sort of leads from these like high, faraway places with commitments that have nothing to do with the communities that they serve, right? And the difference of this kind of leadership or relational place of beginning that says mm -hmm. they're all in this together, like, I'm not just telling you to get in the river. I'm getting in there with you. Like I'm going to stand in there until all of us have, you know, gotten wet. Like I'm not just going to sort of make a, you know, proclamation and send it down that that's what you should do. I hadn't thought of John on that kind of community servant leadership way before um, and being in the saint because he seems so set apart, like as that prophet, as that like, you know, voice in the wilderness, he, he can have this kind of very like detached quality to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is making him seem like much more attached and a part of a specific place, right? And a specific people that hold him um, and hold him accountable and that he's sort of part of a web of human relationship, uh, which mm -hmm. makes me inherently trust him or like anyone more, right? When you're connected and accountable. Yes the folks you are much more trustworthy and you have to walk with the people in the dirty places mm -hmm. they can't be separate activities yeah 
yeah, it's standing in that tension that we were talking about kind of at the outset. John's an interesting one to, where I think if we're preaching or teaching or just talking about him in a whatever setting, like there's some helpful like reading in, reading between the lines, sort of some imaginative, informed but imaginative work that that is to be done because it's so easy, I think, to hear some of his brood of vipers stuff and just imagine him as like a fire and brimstone preacher in mm-hmm. the sort of Western American imagination without sort of teasing out these other sort of subtle things like his solidarity with the people, his lineage and the prophetic tradition, which was always about standing in solidarity with the people and calling out the powerful and the oppressors. Like like some of that isn't said explicitly, but is there if we're willing to acknowledge it. I wonder if that's where he's coming from too, when he talks about like clearing the threshing floor and some things being cut down and the chaff being burned. And the the theme for Advent 2 is usually peace. And this seems so unpeaceful. And so what do y'all think about that? Ooh, you can get so much peace though, Shaniqua, when you burn some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> y'all don't need to be in my therapy session, but recently I had my therapist had me do this like ritualistic releasing process of mm. some stuff. And like, ooh, it was not fun. But the peace afterward, mm. I don't know, you know, I'm going to work on how to maintain that peace. But just the peace yeah. after burning some stuff, mm-hmm. getting rid of, I mean, I don't think that we should think of this symbol as people, which is normally how this text is used mm-hmm. in a especially mm-hmm. violent way. It's talking mm-hmm. about who's going to be burned and not. But what are the things that we can release? What are the things that need to be transformed into through fire to something else? that will bring us the peace because just holding on to the the painful stuff, just holding on to the harmful stuff is not going to heal us. I, I think authentic, true peace, the kind of peace that we're talking about today, the kind of peace that Jesus offers is the kind of peace that follows clarity, clarity and truth. <laughs> if you haven't moved through that clarifying, releasing, burning process, like what you're really talking about is stasis, complacency, hmm. or fear, or suppression, whatever it might be. Like this, psychologically, consciousness-wise, socially, systemically, like I think what you're saying, Tamara, I totally resonate with. Like there has to be this burning symbolically or whatever to to move into what peace actually means and it's a good opportunity for us to in community to like say what do we mean when we say peace a lot of people long for a cheap form of peace right it's far too often yeah and that cheap peace doesn't i mean we long for it and it's it's like it doesn't require anything to change right mm. i mean in that regard we're living in cheap peace now right like we're not actually at war with one another in a civil war kind of way and yet we're we all know there is no peace right like Mm -hmm. there is not peace Mm -hmm. in ourselves there is not peace in our earth there is not peace like between folks right in our families like there is this kind of cheap peace which like you said phil is like stasis right it is just like complacency it's kind of holding the line it's like not stirring up any trouble and if we think of this fire Samara, like you said not as who's gonna be burned and who's not gonna be burned but like what parts of us need to meet that 
threshing floor and when we're sort of whacked around a bit, what is it that's good and that needs to stay? And what is it that's just that chaff that has got to like go, right? What are the egoisms? What are the, you know, the racism, the classism, the ableism, like all of this kind of the sexism, like all of the internalized nonsense that has just got to burn. Like the only way to get to a lasting peace is for that stuff to burn. And it doesn't just have to burn in a collective societal way, but it also has to burn for each one of us, right? Mm. Like, because that's all the, we've all been drinking the Kool-Aid, even if you've tried not to. Like, it, it not no fault of any single person in particular, just like that's the water we're swimming in. Yeah. And so what are those things that like have got to be burned away if we're going to have something that lasts, that is a piece rigorous and robust enough to have room for all of the complexities that each one of us has. Hmm. Tamara, based on what you said too, like sometimes having to let some things go, right? And if I think about it, there's things that I have to let go and then I usually find peace afterward when I've done that. Or like if I'm if I go pray in the Black Hills, you know, you you go with as as minimal as you can and you you're out in nature and you think about it. And I always find that very peaceful afterward. When we think about what we need to get rid of or let go of as churches or as church, I think going back to this idea of the stump, everybody thinks we need to hold on to the tree trunk, right? When it's the shoots maybe that we need to hold on to. And like when I'm hearing churches, I was like, oh, we got to protect our building. And, you know, we da 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 And we've always done it this way. And they assume that that piece is the thing to hold on to. And, and maybe it's not. In this gospel, it talks about the you know, holding onto the wheat and burning the chaff. But I'm wondering if, anyway, it just got me thinking. So let me just stop there. <laughs> well, when you said that, what I was thinking about too is sometimes when the thing, the little, I've been trying to keep plants alive. So <laughs> when the thing like comes out, right, mm-hmm. the new shoot comes out, the old shoot doesn't go away mm-hmm. because the new shoot needs to suck some energy out of that stump. Ah. <laughs> It, it like requires the stump to be there still mm-hmm. as a place to suck its energy from so that it can grow. If the stump just disappeared, then so does the, the shoot. But the dying of the stump doesn't mean that the whole system is gone. It just is being transformed <laughs> into a shoot that then goes off. I was um, recently talking to a, a priest when I was visiting a congregation. And we were talking about the, you know, less people in the church, blah, blah, blah. And a big part of less young people is that a lot of the things the church used to do for young people have now exist in other ways. There are other places where kids can play organized sports. There are other ways that people can get engaged Mm. in musical activities. Like a lot of what church folks started now exists outside of the church structure. And so, what is left is Jesus. That's what we got. That's all we got to offer. Your child can make friends in so many ways in so many other places. You like Sunday brunch sometimes feels way more holy than Sunday morning worship. So the question is for me, is not just like what do we need to let go of, but how can we honor the stump that we come that these shoots are coming off of? And figure out what was it about that stump that helps the shoot stay alive? 
What are the mm. nutrients that are going to help the stump grow? It doesn't mean the stump goes away, but, but like new stuff is happening <laughs> in, in this new shoot. And literally all that we got is Jesus. That's, that's our selling point. So what now? What now indeed? Yeah. This is backing up a little bit to the, we have all our good metaphors today. I was thinking about the, the threshing floor and the chaff being burned. And I was also thinking as we sort of ponder what, what's left, what, what grows, what do we carry forward? You know, part of the, one thing that we should be mindful of is that some of the threshing and the burning is done to people and communities not by no choice of their own. Like there are people mm -hmm. who've been put on the threshing floor by circumstance, not by sort of, you know, proactive decision. Uh, and those are often, you know, people who are at the margins in one way or another. And yet, and this reminds of what you said earlier, Tamara, about the communities that you work with, where they they are like building their own systems of resilience and justice and harmony, despite the failings of the system around them. And it's like, how are we looking to places like that for wisdom about mm. what endures beyond mm -hmm. the threshing floor of the present moment? Because people are already learning how to be resilient, not because they think it's a fun program to do for the church, but because that's survival. Like marginalized communities, whether it's pe people of color or gay people or whatever, like, or the even the earth that's con constantly bruised and battered by exploitation, like, like resilience is all around us, but like, are we willing to look and learn from it and see what actually endures and what's worth keeping and what, what sideways growth can look like like let's let's look there and let's let's find wisdom there and let's have that have the courage and the humility to do that as a church and as a community because it's all around us if we're if we're willing to look and often it is the thing that we have thrown away and not recycled that's good stuff can come from like the compost is so good mm-hmm mm-hmm and it has something to teach us. So thank you, Phil, for reminding us that not everybody wants to be put on that thrashing floor. But maybe if they have been and they have survived, what is it that helped you to survive? What is it that we need to hear from who have survived? Yeah. There's been so much good conversation today. I'm, I think if anybody listens to this, they're already going to know. But I just want to ask you also, what suggestions do you have for preaching Advent to this year? I'm going to give the same suggestion I give every single time I'm on this podcast, which is <laughs> if you the person that preach every Sunday, stop preaching. Let <laughs> okay. someone else preach. <laughs> Who are the people that have been in the valley of the shadow of death and have feared no evil? What word do they have to share with your congregation what child might have a testimony to mm. offer mm -hmm. before these people if we want to say that we want families we want kids whatever we say about new fandangled whatever how do we center the voices of the people we desire to be in our congregation 
to be the ones that stand before your congregation and say a word of hope and preach the good news to the people. Break the rules if you have to. I did not say that as an employee. I said that as Tamara Plummer. So break the (laughs) rules, the preaching rules if you have to, and let other people speak and tell their story. Hmm. I think riffing off what we were saying earlier, like just whatever you do, don't preach cheap peace at this Mm. time of year. Just don't do it. Don't succumb to the temptation to just because it's the holiday season to, to just reside in the land of warm, fuzzy platitudes, like the joy of the incarnation, the joy of Christmas, I think arises out of the full scope of human experience, including the pain and struggle and the acknowledgement of it that we've been sort of reflecting on today. So don't be afraid of the, of the fullness of that and, and lean into it and lift it up in, in whatever way you can so that when Christmas comes, it actually means something. I'd say spend some time in prayer about what the sideways shoots are in your congregation and then lift them up and notice them and celebrate them. Like don't try to cut them off so that the trunk can have more nutrient. Like try to find, you know, okay, we haven't had so many folks return from, you know, worshiping at home and we're doing a hybrid. So like what's, you know, hybrid service or whatever online. So what's the sideways shoot of that? Like, what can we celebrate? I think some of that joy that people are hungry for is also not necessarily our responsibility as like clergy to like, you know, we can only ever be joyful. But I do think sometimes we forget that like that's part of why people come to church on a Sunday morning, right? Is to have, like you said, all we have is Jesus. But like Jesus is incredibly joyful, that full character of joy, right? That encompasses grief, that encompasses all of these other things. And yeah, find those sideways places that you can just wonder together. Like, could God be up to something over here? Or, you know, our toy drive didn't go so well this year, but I noticed everybody stayed for three hours after Sunday service. Like, what Mm. might that sideways shoot be doing about fellowship or the way spirit is moving among us right now? There are always sideways shoots. And I think we can get so caught up in, I can get so caught up in what I planned and what I thought and my little to-do list, right? I love to make a good list. But I can think of the sideways things as nuisances or otherwise, uh, rather than noticing that that is where spirit is alive and working and leading us, right? And so, yeah, so I think thinking of those of those places that your congregation might not be doing this straightforward thing, but might be branching out in this, you know, to the side there, to the left, to the right. Like there might be something growing in an unexpected place and noticing and celebrating that growth. I'm thinking about, you said all we have is Jesus. And I also think one of the things that I think about church that I really like is the relationship. You know, we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a relationship with each other, and I find joy in relationships even when 
you know, they're struggling, you know, sometimes maybe somebody's going through something. And so you're there, but you're still there in relationship. And I think one of the key things about your mom was that she had a relationship with those people. And so, you know, the deeper the relationships, the more she could sort of push them in different ways. And I think maybe that's why the other person got upset because they didn't have that. Sorry, I went way back. Didn't have that same relationship with the person, right? And maybe thinking about relationship and John the Baptist and I really like the side shoot idea. That's probably my recommendation for preaching, the side shoot and, and relationship. And it feels like all the readings that lead up kind of to the Advent season are so much about what, and even the Christmas message, what you thought was not the glory, what you thought was not the thing for us to pay attention to is absolutely mm. where you should have been paying attention. Mm. Thank you so much for being willing to be on this podcast and thank you for sharing your wisdom. I appreciate each and every one of you and I hope you have a blessed Advent season and Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Jazzy, Phil, and Tamara. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you felt a shoot grow out of our conversation today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec slash lovealways.